All right, this is it. It's our final lesson. We're going to complete the section on the Holy Spirit, which is the third piece of Second Isaiah. It starts tonight in chapter 20, uh, 62 with a, I think, a stunning description here of what the Lord is prepared to fulfill on behalf of uh, Israel. Not a new theme, and we, in fact, this is a good point, I think, to remind us of the themes that have driven us through the whole book, just in brief mention here at the beginning, so that you can see once again how circular Isaiah's teaching has been in the traditional Eastern way, taking a thought and turning it over multiple times to make the point. That's the Eastern way. Can you remember what the basic five themes were? God's sovereignty. That's been all over the text. It comes up again tonight. Second one, the sin of Israel, the apostasy and sin of Israel. That comes up again tonight. Third one, judgment for sin, the penalty for sin. That comes up. The restoration of Israel, the, the coming glory of Israel, that comes up tonight. And the fifth one, the fifth one would be a remnant. What's interesting about the way this book concludes in the last four chapters is that all five come up again. But with each one of these turns, we've seen something a little new, something, some detail that we hadn't heard before. And that happens again tonight. Some things that I know were coming from the beginning of the course that are in these last chapters are some of the most fascinating in the whole book. And you'll see what I mean when we get there. 62 begins tonight with a mysterious first person speaker it's written in the first person but it's not entirely clear as you start the chapter who's talking so let's let's go to 62 starting verse 1 for zion's sake i will not keep silent for jerusalem's sake i will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your of your God. It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies. Nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it will drink, will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. So who's speaking? Well, you could list some options. One would be Isaiah because he wrote it. But there's things said within the context of that chapter that wouldn't be true for Isaiah personally. For example, the fact that he didn't in verse 6 appoint watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. We'll look at that verse more here in a minute. Some would say, well, it's got to just be God speaking, the Lord speaking. But then the Lord refers to himself, refers to himself in the third person down in verse eight. The Lord is formed by his right hand or in verse five. So your God will rejoice over you. It wouldn't seem that that's God speaking about himself. He would have said, I will rejoice over you. There seems to be some distancing between God, Yahweh and this speaker. And yet it doesn't seem to make sense that it would be Isaiah either who's speaking in the first person. Well, before we answer that question, let's just look down more of the text itself. Starting at the top, we start with for the sake of Zion, which is a way of saying 
for the sake of the kingdom of Israel. Remember, Zion, the word Zion means Israel in her glorified form in the kingdom. That's why Zionists cause so much angst for uh, those who are opposed to Israel, like Arabs, because to say Zion is to imply a triumphant Israel, which they certainly wouldn't want to see. So for the sake of Zion, this person speaking cannot remain silent and will not remain silent until Israel's righteousness and salvation are established, which would mean the millennial kingdom. So from the time of this writing, which was Isaiah's lifetime, of course, until the time of the kingdom, someone is not going to remain silent and they remain actively speaking or or working in some sense until Israel is found in her glory. And when that time comes, we learn that Israel will have a new name. They'll no longer be called Israel. Anyone here know what Israel means? Strive with God. So it comes from the moment where Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord who is God and his hip is put out of socket and he is renamed. He's wrestling with God as he comes out of that moment he's renamed Israel, which means striving with God. But striving in the Bible, think about another time when striving is used in Genesis 6 when God speaks about the evil on the earth prior to the flood of Noah. And he says, my spirit will not strive with the spirit of man indefinitely. Strive in both cases means a similar thing. It's a negative connotation, refers to contention, to, to a wrestling that is contentious. God doesn't want a relationship with men that is a wrestling or contentious striving kind of relationship. And he doesn't expect it to go on forever in the time of Noah's day. And here we hear that Isaiah or that through Isaiah that Israel itself will not continue to hold on to this name, which is so prophetically accurate of the way Israel and God have had a relationship since Jacob. They have been striving, contending, Israel being stubborn and stiff necked. That relationship changes in the millennial kingdom. And therefore, so does Israel's name. What is her new name? Well, we're told here it is a name that the mouth of the Lord will designate. Isaiah doesn't give us the name here, but interestingly, another prophet does later, about 100 years later. Ezekiel reveals that the name that will be given to the new nation will be Yahweh Shammah, which means the Lord is there. Moving forward, there will be with the Lord. They will be there with the Lord. Israel will be there with the Lord in this new place, married to him as the wife of Jehovah. Now, let's see if we can understand who's speaking. Who would fit the definition of the text? Who would be someone who is apparently not a man because there's a discussion of this person in times that span longer than a lifetime of um, not ceasing to be silent until the kingdom. That person can't be a man if, if it's meant to be literally a human being. No one's living that long. It can't be God Yahweh because the speaker talks about that person being separate from himself. The Lord will rejoice over you. And then in verse six, you who remind the Lord, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise. So he talks about the, the father Yahweh in the third person. And then in verse eight, the Lord is sworn by his right hand and, uh, and by his strong arm. I, and then he quotes him. I will never again give you grain. So there's a apparent distancing of the speaker from Yahweh by this. This same person, though, is working actively and speaking with respect to Zion, to the establishment of Zion. So where does that probably leave us? Probably the spirit. And that makes perfect sense in light of the section that we're in, of course. Wouldn't that be consistent with an interpretation that it's the spirit, given what we've looked at already in the in this book? The spirit is not named in Scripture as a general rule, not when that person is active and working 
The Spirit's named in a third person sense. My Spirit will come to you and so on. But when the Spirit is the actor himself in the text, first person actor, he's not named. The servant of Abraham, the servant of Boaz, or in this case, I without being named. I would argue this is the Spirit. There are other interpretations. Some believe that it is partly Isaiah, partly God. Some believe it's all God. I just don't see how that works in the context of the, te- of the chapter as well. But you can, you can look at that for yourself. Verse 6, just to finish up some commentary on this section, we'll move on. Verse 6 here, uh, when you see him saying that there will be a watchman appointed, we looked at this at an earlier chapter, if you remember, when we were studying this from another point of view. Who were these watchmen we said back then? Angels. One likely interpretation is that the Lord has appointed watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem to continually remind him of his promises, and they, they are angelic watchmen. And if that's true, then they're there today. And they continue to be there. Now, that's not to suggest God forgets his promises. It's simply to symbolically emphasize the assurance that God is giving to Israel, that he would station these messengers there as a uh, sign of his faithfulness. They could also be human agents. Then what he would be saying is not that there are humans that live forever and are on the walls. That's not that. But rather that there is never an absence of some kind of preservation of that city since the days God has established it. That doesn't mean it's always Jewish protection or Jewish population. It just means that the city will always exist so that in the last days it will be there when God needs it to be there for the sake of the people of Israel and for his son. It could also explain why today Israel has managed to survive for so long being such a small nation of people and against all odds because of countries like the United States, for example, who have aligned themselves and are, in a sense, the watchmen of those walls for the sake of Israel. That's a stretch. I'm not sure that's a good way to look at it, but it's all, it's all possible depending on how you look at what he's trying to say. In any event, it's a sign of God's faithfulness. You have the movement and the work of the Spirit in declaring that Israel will be and is God's favored and the work of the Spirit to protect the city and the people and to ensure all the plans of God come to be. For anyone who might suggest that God has moved on in his relationship with Israel and is now blessing the Gentile church in place of Israel or as a substitute for Israel, only have to look at chapters like this one to see uh, Isaiah definitively put an end to that thinking. And this is certainly not the only place. There's so much in the, in the Old Testament to, to refute that thinking. I'm not sure where it ever came from. But if it, if it were an issue for a discussion uh, in your experience, just going to chapter 62, you see God stating a commitment, a promise, to bring about what he has declared will happen for Israel. Not for just anybody, but for the very specific people group of Israel. And no amount of... of you know, fiddling with the text of Scripture can ever arrive at us seeing in view here Gentiles. These words were spoken in Isaiah's day to Jews, and the promises were that those people would eventually see God fulfill his promises to those people. You can't twist that to suggest some other group of people came in and replaced them for the sake of these promises because they're named as his people, as the wife of Jehovah. So at the beginning of 62.10, right at that point in the text, the scene is now at the moment of Jesus Christ's second coming. Understand, the whole, the whole section we're in about the Holy Spirit is almost exclusively focused on the last days, tribulation, and Israel's coming to faith, which is a work of the Spirit, and their entrance into the kingdom. Verse 10, go through, go through the gates, 
Clear the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. You clearly see a couple things in what I just read. A procession. You see people leaving a gated place, going up a highway. They are led by him who is called salvation, Yeshua, which is Christ's name. He is salvation. He has a reward with him. And he has his justice against the wicked before him. That's what recompense means. To take his justice, to take his, his action, his judgment against the wicked. So he's leading a group of people through gates along a highway who are his reward going toward a group who will become his recompense. Now, the group behind him, a group with him, is called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, those of a city not forsaken. Well, it doesn't really take much to figure out what we're talking about. We've got Christ. He's walking somewhere. He's leading people behind him who are the uh, believers, the remnant of Israel, the nation that he has come for. And in front of him are those he will judge, which are the, generally speaking, the Gentiles of that time who have come against Israel right at the end of tribulation. Is it metaphoric? Is he just walking in the sense that he's arrived? Or is he really walking somewhere? Is this a real moment in the, in the scene of, at the end of tribulation? Well, 63 continues and you see more clearly what we're looking at. 63 verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Batsra? The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. And trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. We've studied these already if you remember, a ways back in an earlier part of Isaiah when we looked at Batsra and they're holding up of the remnant of Israel in this special place preserved for them so that they would remain safe during tribulation. We know Jesus is now seen coming from Batsra or Petra, modern day Jordan. That would suggest that the scene we just saw in the last part of 62 is the same moment. The end of 62 is the description of him leaving this enclosed area, this gated area that holds the remnant of Israel, he walks out with them. And now we transition to the other side of the walk. We have Isaiah speaking from his vantage point in Jerusalem, looking southeast in the direction that they would be coming. And he sees this approach of Christ. In movie-like terms, you have the scene cutting from his walking out to the scene of Isaiah watching him show up. That's how the two chapters are knitted together. Now you watch what he sees, and he sees this procession of the Jews with Jesus coming in front of them, and his garments are red with blood. Some have interpreted this wrongly to mean this is his own blood. If you look in chapter 19 of Revelation, Jesus is said to be coming, and his garments have blood on them. And the interpretation in Revelation 19 is similar, that, oh, it's his own blood from the cross. 
That makes no sense. I mean, Revelation chapter 1 has Jesus showing up with none of that on him. Now, why would he not have it when he spoke to John about the Revelation, but it's back again when he comes back 2,000 years later? That makes no sense. Never mind the fact that he, here in chapter 63, explains why he has blood, and he doesn't say it's his own blood. He says it's the blood of those that he trampled or that he destroyed or defeated when he went to battle against them. We know this is his second coming, and in light of that, we also then know that Revelation 19's reference to blood must be for the same reason. The assumption is this is the blood of those who were trying to attack the remnant that were holed up in Basra. He did violence to them as necessary to put them down. He moves from them all the way to Israel. While he's in Israel, he's going to do another battle with those who are aligned against the Jews that are in Jerusalem. Moving further as he talks about what he did. What do we make of the fact that he said there was no one there to help me? Verse 3, no man with me. I did it all myself. Wouldn't we question that because we know that in verse in chapter 19 of Revelation, he comes back with the saints. We will be with him when he arrives to do all these things. How can he say he's alone? Well, in Revelation 5, if you remember, John hears it said in heaven that there was no one found who could open the scroll. And John is shown weeping over the fact that no one was found worthy to open the scroll. If you read just another verse later, then the lamb opens the scroll. So the lamb was actually worthy to open the scroll. But before that moment, it said no one was worthy. I think that uh, part of Revelation 5 is similar in intent to what you see stated in chapter 63, verse 3 in Isaiah, meaning no one except Christ. No one was capable except Christ. No one was worthy except Christ. No one was able except Christ. Not that he wasn't alone, but simply that he didn't need anyone and he didn't use anyone and no one else could have done what he did. He was alone in ability, in worth. So the point of the phrase no one is to emphasize no man is able to accomplish the saving work of the Lamb in the way that he can do it. We don't come to fight with him, we just come with him. And he does all the fighting. Verse 7 then, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horses in the wilderness? They did not stumble as the cattle which go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Where does this passage fit in? You just saw Jesus returning, claiming his people, defending his people. And then in verse 7, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. Who's speaking again? It would seem as though Isaiah is the one speaking here. What's interesting to me is how often the Spirit is seen in this passage, which is not normal, not necessarily. You don't typically see this. He is seen grieved in verse 10. He is seen put in their midst in verse 11, and he is seen as the one giving them rest in verse 14. 
It's an unusually pronounced view of the Spirit's work in this one chapter. By the way, if you look at this chapter and even the prior one, there's the Trinity clearly visible again in the way you see the different actors named at different points separated from one another. I mention all this just to say it's possible that this could be more of what we started with in chapter 62 with the Spirit recounting or not remaining silent, as it were, on God's faithfulness to Israel. But putting that aside for just a moment, this is a recounting of what God has done for Israel and what they have not done or what they failed to do in response. So the text goes back to the first person, whether it's the Jews themselves saying these things or whether it's the Spirit speaking. In either case, they declare God's goodness according to all that he has done for them. Look at the references here. For example, verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. The next part of that verse starts to tell you what he's talking about. When did the angel of his presence save them? This is speaking about their time in, in Egypt. They were afflicted in slavery. He was afflicted with them. In other words, their years of suffering and slavery, God felt that with them. And the angel of his presence saved them. What immediately followed their exodus? The angel of the Lord leading them through the desert. This is a confirmation here that the angel was actually the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of his presence. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them, he lifted them, he carried them all the days of old, but then they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. That's a reference to the rebellion in the desert. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. So, because they grieved the Holy Spirit, God became their enemy for a time. And during that time, going back to what we studied last week, he was silent with them, remember? So, in response to their rebellion, and this is a rebellion sort of summarizing their relationship from the time of the desert all the way through kings and so on, but in summary of their relationship to him, he turns his back on them for a time. He's their enemy. He's silent with them. And then what you see happening in verse 11, the questions, where is he, where is he, and so on, that's spoken from the point of view of the Jew, who now in the time of waiting, in this time of silence, and in this time of God making himself an enemy with them, they start asking what you hear said even today among many Jews, among many in the world, where is God? which is why Time Magazine in the 60s can put God is dead on their cover, right? It's this notion that where are all the miracles? Wouldn't we still expect to see a supernatural expression of God on a regular basis if what we see in the Bible was true? Because it seems to talk about this stuff happening routinely. We don't see it happening. Ergo, God is dead or the Bible's false. Or God's remaining silent for a reason. And in this case, Scripture says he would and is remaining silent with the nation of Israel as a part of judgment for them, but it's temporary. During that time, these are the things they say. Where is he? Where did he go? And who did these things? Finally, the Jews of tribulation, the remnant of tribulation, will come to the recognition that all of what they've experienced in their history, all the misery, all the silence, was a result of their own nation's disobedience. That will be one of the things God brings to the nation in tribulation, one of the revelations that he makes available to the remnant that's living during tribulation. He impresses upon them not only about who Christ is and so on, he brings a knowledge of why they're in the situation they're in. And then they'll give credit to the Spirit again and to the Lord for leading his people and for giving them rest once they understand what's going on. Look at verse 15. Look down from heaven. And see your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. 
You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. But why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. So remember the scenes, all packed at the end of tribulation. We go from the declarations of God having done these things of old, been silent and where is he now, to a remnant in that very last day saying to God in heaven, we are your people. Why do you cause us to stray? Why do you harden our hearts? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. And they ask here basically for the Lord to demonstrate himself in the same way that he did in the past for Moses. Now come and do that for us here. If you want to put it in sort of the historical moment, we know from all we've studied in Isaiah, there is this pressure building on the time of tribulation directed toward the Jews. There's the mid-trib moment where things get much, much worse. Even if they've been just you know, bad enough going into that moment. At mid-trib, the Antichrist is indwelt by Satan. He is cast out of heaven and no longer able to enter. He knows his time is short. He gets very angry about that and he's going to strike out against the Jewish people because he understands they are the key to his own destruction. No Israel, no one to call on the Lord. No one to call on the Lord. The Lord never comes back. The Lord doesn't come back. He doesn't get destroyed. So he understands the importance and still and always has. But now it becomes especially important for him that Israel cease to exist. So he begins to persecute two groups of people mercilessly, those who are the bondservants of Jesus. That would mean anyone who has come to faith already in tribulation. So believers are being martyred. And any who hold to the commandments of God. That's a reference to Moses. Orthodox Judaism. So Orthodox Jews, remember, you either take the number of the beast, in which case you just become one of the multitude of unbelievers who, have been, who, who will no longer have any opportunity for faith, right? To take the number of the beast puts an end to any opportunity for faith. Or if you're not one of those, you're an enemy to those. And the two principal enemies that won't take the number, the only two groups that are holdouts, are Christians and the Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews are not the remnant. The remnant are the other group. Remnant is a believing Element, always the believing element is a remnant. So the remnant of tribulation are those who have come to know Christ. They're being persecuted. But there's a second group, which is not yet a believing group. So they are not the remnant, but they are the Israel that will become a remnant on the last day. They are the Orthodox Jews who will not give themselves over to the Antichrist and hold to the commandments of God. That group has the temple, at least for the first half of tribulation. That group is the group that will eventually become those in the city of Jerusalem who on the last day cry out for Christ because they come to know him in that moment. They are the ones that God preserves for that moment so that Israel will have that, that opportunity on the last day. But getting to that point, they are simply Orthodox Jewish unbelievers persecuted for their Judaism. This part of chapter 63, which I just read there at the end, is the transition out of the discussion of Christ's return backward in time just slightly to the moment when these Jews have come to know who Christ is and are calling out on him and they need him to come back now and defend them. Look how they ended in, in verse 18. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. That's referencing their use of the, of the tribulation temple during the first half of tribulation. They had three and a half years of using their sanctuary for a little while. And then it says our adversaries have trodden it down. So that's the orthodox element again saying we had your temple for a while. It's gone. Then verse 19, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. 
like those who are not called by your name. We're seen as if we have no God protecting us anymore. We have no heritage in Israel anymore. We're being wiped out. So that's their, that's their despondent, desperate last moment. So the, the remnant will plead for the Lord's return. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 64. Oh, that you would render the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor, have, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and all our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? Note again the first person voice. So here you have the remnant confessing their sin and calling on Christ to return. This would be a complementary chapter to Psalms 80, was it? The confession of the nation of Israel during the last days that bring Christ back. This is another form of the same. So I don't propose that any of them are necessarily word for word, but they all seem to uh, express the same sentiment. A recognition that in their past they've rejected Him, that their sins are that they're experiencing now a consequence for their past sins and at the same time a call upon him to now recognize that they know him and to come save them. The first verse here is a specific call to the Messiah's return. Verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. We know from Zechariah 14, Habakkuk 3, that when Christ returns, his second coming is associated with great earthquakes. In response to this confession... You're now going to see, I think, in my opinion anyway, two of the most beautiful chapters in the Old Testament revealing God's dispensation of grace to Israel and specifically to the remnant. Now, keep in mind, the Israel that's being described here, the one who's receiving all of these, is the orthodox, unbelieving remnant that comes to faith on the last day. To that group, he speaks what he's going to do. Now, any of of Israel who died in faith... Abraham and so on, they'll receive these same things as they come back with Christ, of course. But the point is, to the ones on earth, it's limited to that small group. They just, they're the ones who trigger it for the rest. Verse 1 of chapter 65. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long. To a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. A people who continually provoke me to my face. 
offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom before their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Now, as Paul explained in Romans, the Lord declares through Isaiah that the Gentiles received his grace during a time when the Jewish nation was set outside that grace. Paul described it as a hardening, a temporary partial hardening. So, There is a time in which, as he states here at the beginning, he allowed a people who did not seek him, the Gentiles, to know him, while he simultaneously stretched out his hand all day to a rebellious people. I've heard this interpreted different ways, but I think in the context of the verse, the way he means by stretched out his hand is what a running back does in football when he's trying to avoid someone tackling him. He stiff arms him. It's not stretched out as in, come to me. That's the, the interpretation I've often heard, which makes no sense in the context of this chapter. With all that's read about it, above and be, uh, above it and, and after it in the text, he's saying throughout of it, throughout it, I've I've honored a different people than you, and I have nothing but recompense for those who have rejected me, and I have stretched my hand out to them in the sense of not letting them come to me, because I want to show my displeasure with them. I think that's the sense of it here. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following after their own thoughts. Now I could be wrong. And you may have heard the other view and prefer it, but I think that's what he's saying here. He's describing his actions against them, not his invitation of sorts to him. Having said that, he says, I'm going to repay both for their sins and the sins of their father, Israel who scorned me. And that's going to be his description or his explanation for why there was a silent period and more particularly why there was a tribulation period. Because they scorn the Lord. But the remnant is still in, in the back of his mind and it comes out here in the text. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it for there is benefit in it, so I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. The reference here to a cluster is, is an, a reference, you, I guess you, you, you have to study on it to understand how they looked at wine cluster, but or grape clusters for the purpose of wine. Not every grape is suitable for making wine if the cluster was too old or if it had damaged grapes on it. You didn't necessarily take the whole cluster and put it into the, into the um, wine press, the grape press, and make wine with it because you'd end up with wine that was a mixture of good and bad grapes and it would sour the flavor. But you also didn't take the whole cluster and throw it out just because there were some bad grapes on it. You took the good grapes out of it and you used those. That's the analogy he's making for the sake of the remnant. The fact that you have a bad cluster in, in the case of Israel as a whole doesn't mean there aren't some good grapes in there. And he is prepared, he says, to act on behalf of my servants so as not to destroy all of them. So that's the introduction to him explaining why he was prepared to still do good for the sake of Israel because there would still be the remnant he has preserved. Verse 9. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountain from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds and for my people who seek me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called 
but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. So the basic point of this text, as I read it, was God's grace to come for the remnant. And it's contrasted with the judgment he brings against the larger group of apostate Jews in Israel. But it's really speaking at the time of tribulation. This is a truth, I guess, you could argue for all of time, right? He's always holding out grace for the the remnant is always in grace and is always going to receive uh, the, the blessings that come with it. And simultaneously, those who are apostate always have judgment waiting for them. But this is still local or specific to tribulation because of some of the references in it. When he talks about hungry and thirsty and so on, he's referring here to the way the remnant. Remember, who were the remnant of Israel in the last days in tribulation? The believing Jews who've come to know the Lord. And there will be Gentiles who come to know the Lord. But who is the remnant? Jews who come to know the Lord, right? The Gentiles that come to know the Lord are simply tribulation saints, as we call them. But the remnant are Jews who come to know the Lord during tribulation. Where do they spend their time during tribulation? From mid-trib on, they're in Petra. Right? That's what Revelation describes in chapter 13 and 14. Once they're in Petra, they're protected. There's food, there's water, there's rejoicing, in the sense that they know they're protected, they're under God's care. If you are my servant, during the time of tribulation, you have the protection that comes from God for being the servant of God, to know him truly, to be the one he says in 9 and 10, the offspring from Jacob, these are Jews, and an heir from the mountains of Judah, these are the Jewish people. Even my chosen one shall inherit it. My servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land and so on. Then he says for verse 11, in verse 11, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my mountain, who set a table for fortune, by the way, these references to fortune and, and destiny, they speak to the occult, but they were in the Hebrew. These are the proper names of two occult gods that Israel worshipped at various times. And in a typical, typical way for Isaiah, he does a play on words in Hebrew where in verse 11 he says you have a, a cup for destiny. And then in verse 12 he says, I will destine you. You love destiny? Well, wait till I destine you for the sword. That's, that's the way he puts it back to them. So for those in tribulation who are... The apostate Jew, what does the apostate Jew do during tribulation? They will do what? Take, take the mark. They will then fall into these judgments. Remember, we're not talking about the orthodox Jew who has not yet become a believer. They're not the remnant and they're not the apostate Israel. They're a separate group. God has held back for the last day. They are destined to be the remnant. <laughs> but until they believe, they're not considered the remnant. So that group's not in view right now, not in this passage. What he's talking about here is the contrast between those in Petra who have been given the privilege of being protected because they're the remnant versus the apostate Jew who has turned his back on all that God has offered and has you know, gone with the enemy and they are going to be judged. That's the contrast. In verse 17, we now see the movement out of the time of tribulation into the time of the kingdom. That's one of his themes, right? Here's one of those themes coming up again. Let's look at what comes up now as he describes the kingdom. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth 
and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lamb will eat straw like the ox. And the dust will be the serpent's food. And they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. There's a lot here. This is a description of the kingdom. Notice how interesting some of these descriptions are of that day. For example, he starts with, it is a new heaven and new earth. Now, this is a classic place for possible confusion if you've read Revelation 21-22. We know in Revelation 21 and 22, there is this description of a new heavens and new earth to come that follows the kingdom. We refer to that as the eternal order because we know of no following order. We have nothing in Scripture that tells us that that ever changes. Now, that doesn't mean it won't. It just means God hasn't revealed it to ever change. So we call it the eternal order. This is not that. And we know that this is not, that this reference to a new heavens and new earth does not describe the same one that Revelation is talking about, the eternal order, for several reasons. The most obvious, though, is that in his description of this time, Isaiah talks about death. But death is not present in the new order, in the eternal order. So that would tell us that when Isaiah says new heavens and new earth, that he's using that term to describe the recreated or the renewed version of earth that must come out of tribulation. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know there's an awful lot of nasty stuff that happens during that time. The world's going to be a wreck, basically. It's not the kind of place you want to spend any quality time. But after that's over, there's some period of renewal, apparently. This is what he's referring to. The new heaven and new earth refers to the renewal that must take place to move the earth back to a point where you can inhabit it and enjoy it. But it's not yet the eternal order. It's not the earth that we know is, is due to come later. Just to make the point, though, some would see those verses as describing the eternal order because the phrase is so similar. But the context tells you it can't be the same. Death being the principal difference, this cannot be the eternal order. Now, the text does raise one very interesting issue that may actually contradict something I've said earlier in this, in this uh, book. So I'm going to leave it as a bit of a, a, an open question, but I want to take you through it for just a moment in the way it's presented in the text. These verses describe life during the kingdom time and more specifically, the nature of life and death during this time. So there is death that's being described here and the nature of it. Now, remember, we've said this already. You can go to several places in the, in the text we've already studied to see this. But there are natural men and natural women in the kingdom time. Natural is the term Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe the kind of body that we received when we were born on earth. You came into the world into a body that Paul calls the natural man, the natural body, 1 Corinthians 15. In that chapter, Paul contrasts the natural body that we now have, all of us have the natural body right now, with the heavenly 
or he says the imperishable body that we will all receive upon our resurrection at the rapture. Remember, whether you're dead before the rapture happens or whether you're still alive, you still get your new body during the rapture. The reason for the rapture is the giving of a new body to all the church saints. There will be a second body for all of us that is imperishable, can't die, and is made of a new substance or of a heavenly source that is different than what we now have in our natural earthly form today. Going further, we know Jesus teaches in Matthew 22:30 that when we are in that new heavenly body, we will not marry or be given into marriage, referring to the man or the woman. And that strongly implies that we will not have need for reproduction or even opportunity for such. Because marriage is itself an institution God established to provide for the creating and the raising of children in a family. In other words, the fact that we are marrying is for the purpose of reproduction and populating the earth, as he said, be fruitful and multiply. If marriage is being withheld from us in that future state, then it strongly implies, if not guaranteeing, that we are no longer having reproduction either. God doesn't need more people from the heavenly realm. He has established who will be there from the foundations of the earth. Once the last of them has been saved, then he has the number he wants, and that's who enters into the kingdom, and there's no need to add to it, so there's no need for reproduction, so there's no need for marriage. So if you take what Jesus says about our heavenly nature, and you take the fact that Paul says that natural men are those who can reproduce and marry versus the ones in the new heavenly body can't, then the kingdom period is evidently going to be marked by a mixing of resurrected heavenly bodies who live in that time, principally made up of you and I and the Old Testament saints, combined with natural bodies that walk into the kingdom, literally, from their earthly life because they've never died during tribulation. They are rescued by Christ upon his return, and therefore there's no need for a resurrection to a heavenly body. They didn't die in the first place. They just walk in. You have the natural capable of marriage and reproduction, the heavenly not so. More importantly, you have natural bodies which still carry sin. And therefore, when they reproduce, they still produce children who come from the same nature as Adam and and you and I today. So there will still be sin in their reproductive bodies. The children come into the world sinful. And that would mean that all the same spiritual truths which apply to natural men today will apply to the natural men in that day, meaning they will have an inability to know and trust in the Lord apart from God's grace. In a sense, you have the world starting again in the way it started under Adam, but with the twist that now the Lord is resident on earth and he is accompanied by heavenly, heavenly-bodied beings, you and I, who are not dying, of course, and are not reproducing and have no sin. So an entirely new experience in that regard, of course. Now, let's look at what Isaiah says here, and let's compare that to some things we've studied earlier with respect to reproduction among those who are in the kingdom. First, he says this is a time of rejoicing, a time when the former things are not remembered, and this is all confirming that we're talking about the millennial kingdom. And then he speaks in Hebrew poetry, as all of this is, in verse 20, when he describes the nature of life and death. He says, regarding the length of life, For those in the kingdom. Now, if he's talking about death as a possibility or the length of life, that automatically means we're talking about which group of people in the kingdom. Has to be the natural. It's only talking about those who were the natural men and women who walked into the kingdom. They are now marrying and they're reproducing. Infants from those marriages will not live but a few days, meaning 
there is no infant mortality. Any child born lives onward past infancy. Following that, it says old men live out their days in the kingdom. That would mean there's no death from old age either. No one dies as an infant, nor do people die from just living too long. If you take both of those away, what other death is there? Well, then he says, the youth of the day die at 100. That would seem to set a minimum age for death. When they don't die as an infant, but there is death, but they can't die as an old man either, where does it start to happen? When does it kick in? This would seem to suggest that it's only at the point of 100 that you would begin to see death possible for anyone, that a youth will live to at least 100. But the next verse is even more difficult to translate. In fact, I think the NASB gets it wrong here. And I looked at a lot of different translations, and I think the NASB puts the wrong emphasis on it. The one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Well, that seems to contradict the earlier verse. If the minimum age before death is 100, then how can you ever have someone who does not reach that age? It seems to make a strange kind of contradiction. The Duhay and the Darby both translate it this way. There shall no more be an infant of days there, nor an old man that shall not fill up his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. That's the more accurate way, I think, to translate. The sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. It says that the 100th year of life in the kingdom is the milestone event for every natural man or woman. The 100th year of life is the milestone event. They aren't going to die before that time, but on their 100th birthday, they are going to come to death if they do not know the Lord by that time. When they say in verse 20, the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Well, it means it in the biblical sense. The sinner contrasted with the saint. The one who has by their rejection of faith, they are under the judgment for their sin versus the one who has escaped that judgment in faith. That's the contrast. So it would say that the sinner is the one who, by their failure to accept Christ, reaching the 100th year, loses their chance to exist in the kingdom past that point. There is a time limit of 100 years. So that would mean that the believers of that time, both heavenly, you and I, and those who are the natural bodied men and women who come to faith, they live forever. They live the entire length of time in the kingdom. So if you were a child of someone in that time, you come to faith before the year 100, you don't die at 100. Likewise, you live out your years as an old man. You never find death as an old man or woman. You're living to the end of, of the time. But unbelievers that are born during that time die at the age of 100. Now, it might be interesting to ask ourselves at this point why this pattern, the very pattern I just described, wouldn't be enough by itself to convince everyone who's living during that time to accept Christ. You know, I've noticed, Dad, some people always die at 100. Why is that? Well, let me explain it to you, son. You would think that would be enough. For that matter, wouldn't the very presence of Christ ruling on earth be enough? But then again, if his presence was enough, then his presence during the first coming should have been sufficient just as much, right? So if his presence during the first coming wasn't sufficient to convince many people, then why would we expect his presence in the second coming to be any more convincing? There's a simple answer. The simple answer is the natural man is incapable of understanding spiritual truth. Paul says it succinctly in one verse in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
It's a fundamental truth of Scripture. In our natural state, it is not a matter of desire or choice or opportunity. It is a spiritual issue, and we are fundamentally flawed in our nature such that we cannot, he says, understand the things of God because they require a spiritual understanding which cannot come from within us, must come from outside, must be granted us. If God's going to have to do that for us in this life, in this world today, if we're natural, which is the case for all men and women, then the same spiritual truths carry into the kingdom for natural people. He must grant them this spiritual understanding. So it's a measure of election. Those who will be granted it will come to know it before the year 100, and those who are not being granted it at 100, he's putting an end to their life. That raises the question of why is he stopping them at all? My best guess, and I only have a guess, is that where he allowed them to live throughout the kingdom as he does believers, his glory is diminished because there's no distinction. Drawing contrast is commonly what God is about doing. But then on a practical level, you might reach the point where the world is overrun with them. It may just be a constraint on the sin of the world. And God does that in all kinds of ways. Noah is the most visible way in which he acts to constrain or reduce the effect of sin in the world. This can be a governor of sorts, if you think of it that way. Who are these natural bodies? In the past, we found evidence in Scripture where it seemed to be suggested by Isaiah that the Jewish nation itself, the ones that are brought in, the remnant that are brought in and begin the kingdom, come in absent sin. And if that interpretation were accurate, then it would, el- it would eliminate them from consideration as potentially part of this natural group because the natural group has sin. So what we would be saying is those who are in the remnant of Israel on that last day who come to faith and cry out for him and he returns for them, they're natural at that moment. But somehow before the kingdom begins, they're given a new body and made heavenly. You can find some of those verses I talked about in Isaiah just give you the citations. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 is one of those places. But if you go back and look at it, I could be wrong because the text doesn't clearly state that. It suggests that they are, but it's unclear. If you go with what some believe, which is that they come in as natural, then you say that we know Gentiles come in as natural. Some of the Gentile nations walk in, the people of tribulation that become believers. Likewise, we might say Israel has some natural. They have the heavenly and they have a natural component. And the natural of Israel will also reproduce. There was some things I read just in the verses I've pointed to already where it talks about that they will have descendants and your offspring. So maybe that's to suggest that Israel is going to include natural, not entirely resurrected. To finish up on this chapter and then read the last one to close the night, you notice it says that they will build and not another will inhabit or they will plant and another will not eat and so on. This is referencing the satisfaction of work. I want you to see in your mind a movement over time from when God created the world in perfection to the fall of Adam and woman, which then led to curses. Those curses made work unsatisfactory and difficult. Later, God put the fear of men in animals and gave men the right to eat them. So that created a natural defense and tension there. So there's been this descent of creation out of sin, which God intends to repair, ultimately with the new heavens and new earth. But he moves us there in stages. The first stage of reparation, of repair, is he gives men a new spirit. So we are spiritually raised back up. Then he gives us a new body. Then we are physically moved to where we should be as Adam was. Then he gives us a new heavens and new earth here where, if you notice, the work is no longer fruitless. It is fruitful. It is no longer difficult. It is easy. We wear out the work of our hands, meaning we make something and we use it until it's worn out because no one takes it from us because it's never lost. We don't build and someone else inhabit. And then lastly, in verse 25... The lion and the lamb will graze together. You've heard this before, right? 
The lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. You see the animal kingdom coming back together now. So I just want you to see this is that next step. We're one step short of perfection as it was in the garden. Before the sin of Adam and Eve, we're one step short at this moment. We have everything repaired except what? Sin and all that it brought. Death and the enemy, right? Those things kind of wrapped together get redressed at the end of the kingdom. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he must rule until all things are brought under subjection to him. And once all things are brought under subjection, including death itself, then he hands all authority back to the Father. Christ will rule until that point. All right, well, with that, we are now at the last chapter. We're chapter 66. We, uh, we'll just go through this chapter relatively quickly. I want to make some comments along the way, and uh, we'll wrap up our study. So let's begin in chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to the one I will look, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. He, but he who kills an ox is like the one who slays a man, and he who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like the one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. And they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their punishments, and bring, and bring on them what they dread, because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Well, Isaiah opens up in chapter 66 then, uh, still now looking at those last days and specifically now at the orthodox element of Jews who are unbelieving in that day, who have gone into the temple that's been rebuilt in tribulation and they are now sacrificing during those three and a half years of the first three and a half years of tribulation. And as he speaks through Isaiah, speaking to that group, he starts by emphasizing that his throne is in heaven and his, his temple and his home are there. So no one's built anything for him. His temple and his home have always been in heaven. The one on earth, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, was always meant to be a shadow or a copy of heavenly things. And those sacrifices being made in the earthly temple during tribulation are ones that he says in verse 3 are not pleasing to him because they are sin. He uses comparisons in verse 3 between killing an ox, which would be something you would do in a sacrificial uh, moment or in, in a process of sacrificing, but that's like someone who murders a man. And l similarly, sacrificing a lamb is compared to breaking a dog's neck, a cruel treatment of an animal. So the point is that these Orthodox Jews who have taken upon themselves the process of uh, reestablishing the sacrifices given under the Mosaic Covenant, they are not pleasing to God because they come at them in their own way, he says in verse 3. They've chosen their own ways, and so their soul delights in abominations, and they are trying to produce in their own work a kind of righteousness, which is not possible now that the one and only sacrifice of Christ has been made possible, as the writer of Hebrews says. So judgment still comes upon them during that seven-year period because they have not seen the truth in the Messiah. So remember, this is not the remnant. These are the Orthodox Jews who are sacrificing in the temple. Then in verse 5, he goes on. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. So now this is the contrast between 
the remnant, the believing remnant of Jews in the time of tribulation, and this uh, orthodox unbelieving group. In contrast to the unbelieving orthodox, God then speaks encouragement to the faithful remnant of tribulation who reject the temple sacrifices. This, this must include the 144,000 who in chapter 7 of Revelation come to faith. They would have had to have separated themselves from the orthodox element of Judaism that was still seeking to sacrifice in that temple that was constructed. And when they do that, they're going to be excluded. Look in verse 5. It says, your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake. And those same Orthodox Jews who have excluded the remnant because the remnant was not willing to sacrifice in the temple and having come to an understanding that Christ was the sacrifice, that Orthodox element in verse 5 then goes on to say, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but no, they will be put to shame, Isaiah says. So he is separating out in these last days the Orthodox Jew who is not faithful and is not a part of the remnant from those who are. Then in verse 7, Isaiah says, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says the Lord? Now this little piece within chapter 66 is Isaiah describing the coming rebirth of Israel into the glory that's promised to her. And in the language we just read, it's clear that this rebirth comes so fast that Isaiah compares it to a birth coming before the labor pains in verse 7. And we know this is the fact because in the study we've done so far, we know in Zechariah 12:10, as we've looked at before, there is a single moment in which the nation of Israel is rebirthed, that the, the last Jews of tribulation who are still unbelieving come to know him in the last minute, come to know Christ. And so in that moment, there is the instantaneous rebirthing of Israel. Verse 10. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed. You will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this and your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants and he will be indignant toward his enemies. So this is uh, straightforward. Isaiah speaking that the rebirth of the nation then is a comfort to all who love Zion, who love the, the glorified Israel. And like one who mourns with a woman over the loss of a child, now, Isaiah says, there will be rejoicing with the Israel over her rebirth at the beginning of the kingdom because Israel becomes a mother of sorts for all who love her because as the chief nation of the earth in that day, she is the one that all the other nations will uh, receive joy from in serving Israel. And then in uh, 15 onward we read, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will exclude, will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center, who eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice. 
will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And this is in many ways a recounting of things we've studied again. Another theme back to the foreground now, the theme of the kingdom the Lord arriving for Israel, as we've seen, and then with him judgment for the nations. And then those who are an abomination will come to an end. And the nations of the world, the Gentiles, will hear from the remnant of Israel concerning the Lord. And they will see the Lord's glory in that day. And that will result in the Gentile nations coming to Zion to praise and worship the Lord. This is a common theme we've seen before. And then to conclude the chapter and the book, verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Well, just as we've seen in the first two sections of Second Isaiah, now this third section of Second Isaiah comes to a conclusion with that characteristic ending, speaking of the, of the wicked and what is in the future waiting for them. But before that, he describes the kingdom here and uh, summarizes it as a time of Israel's prominence, Gentiles worshiping. Notice they're worshiping on a monthly basis by moons and on a weekly basis by Sabbaths, by uh, a weekly and a monthly calendar. And in a kind of predecessor to the lake of fire, you have unbelievers and demons spending that thousand years of the kingdom burning in a nearby place. It's interesting. Isaiah says that they will be able to see this place. We, we will be in a kingdom in which we know the location of the damned and where they are in this time. And based on what we've read earlier in Isaiah, it seems as though it's possible that this burning place is either Edom or maybe Babylon or both so that it's a place physically located on the earth. This is a perpetual burning place for the wicked. Well, that will bring our study to an end. It's been a long study. I certainly appreciate uh, the, the patience and the diligence of so many to attend on, on the, such a difficult study at times. It's such a rich study. But I do pray the Lord has blessed each one of us who have uh, attended and been a part of this. And I hope you found a closer walk with the Lord as a result of this study. So thank you for being here. Let's go to the Lord as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, thanking you for the faithfulness you've uh, poured out on us in helping uh, bring the study about, bringing it to a conclusion and, and uh, ensuring, Father, that we would follow it faithfully. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom and for the power of your word and for the glory that you have revealed through Isaiah. We pray that glory would come quickly, Father. We pray the Lord would return quickly and we look forward to spending this glorious time as you've described it in his presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.